Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Sandra Butler, award-winning author and producer, author of It Never Ends, Mothering Middle-Aged Daughters. Relationship between mothers and daughters have forever been complicated. In this unique, one-of-a-kind parenting book, Sandra Butler, along with co-author Nan Fink-Geffen, Ph.D., explore the specific challenges and unexpected rewards of mothering midlife daughters and how the role changes with the aging of both parent and child. Butler is the co-producer of two award-winning documentaries and co-founder of Bay Area Women in Black. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Sandra. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay. Well, mothers and daughters' relationships, as uh, you know, as you say in your book, have are constantly evolving. Um, and I guess my first question is um, how. And we, I know that I, I'm, not, I'm not a mother of. of uh, I don't have a daughter, but I am a daughter, so I have some sense of that happening. Uh, how did you become the expert in in this field of of mothers and daughters and their evolving relationships? Well. I don't know that I would call myself an expert, but I can tell you how this book emerged. Um, I, I, like you, am a daughter. I'm also the mother of two middle-aged daughters. Uh, my co-author is the mother of two daughters, and we've been friends for 30 years. <clears throat> and our daughters were in their 20s when our friendship began. And as the years went by and we were aging and they were aging, it became clear to both of us that we were still mothering them, but it looked and felt very, very different. Uh, we were not guiding them. We were not suggesting. We were not offering options or alternatives the way we did in their 20s and 30s. These are now fully grown, fully baked, cooked women with partners, with children, with values, with choices, but yet we're still mothering them. And we talked a lot about, well, what does that look like and what does that feel like and how is that different? Because in the dominant culture, the the belief seems to be that once your daughter leaves home to go to work or to college or to down the aisle, that you're through mothering. But mothering keeps mutating and taking different forms and involving different dimensions of who you are. And we found that very, very interesting. And in part, there are so many stereotypes about old mothers. Uh, and we know enough old mothers to know they were stereotypes. But we really wanted to talk to other old women. And so we interviewed 78 women from 65 to 82. They were all retired. Um, and we gathered as broad a cross-section as we could of race, class, ethnicity, education, sexuality, geography, and so forth. Uh, but to go back to your use of the word expert, this book is suggestive. It's exploratory. It's a beginning. We wrote this book because there is no book about old women in the voice of old women. Old women have been studied. Old women have not spoken in their own voice about the nature and the quality and the dimensions of their own lives. So for us, this is opening a conversation that is long overdue. In the back of the book, there are <clears throat> discussion questions, which Nan and I very much hope will lead to groups of mothers sitting together and talking about what it actually feels like to be the mother of the daughter or daughters that they have. And these are typically conversations, if they ever happen, happen with a partner or a therapist or one best friend. And it's breaking a silence that 
of of the reality of this dimension of old women's lives that we wanted very much to be brought forward. Well, do you think the reason is, I mean, you're saying it's breaking a silence, but I'm wondering if things have just changed culturally, just in general, old women are living longer, they're more vital, and they have more connection to their daughters because of, because right. of the way we communicate. So they're very much probably more involved in their daughters' lives than they ever were or have the opportunity to be involved more than they ever did before, even if they well, live in California and their daughter lives in New York. Depending on what the daughters will permit, depending on finances, depending on geography, I mean, depends on a lot of things. It's extremely variable. You're right that we are living longer and some of us are living longer in a healthy body, some of us are living longer in an unhealthy body, but that part of the relationship is a very a dynamic one in that the tension between autonomy and safety is very present. So as mothers begin to lose physical autonomy, which we do even when we're healthy, you know, women are no longer driving at night or, you know, stuff like that, and then it progresses as we get older and our, our bodies become more and more prescribed what we can and can't do. We're losing a certain degree of the autonomy that has accompanied our entire lives if we've been able-bodied our entire lives. From the daughter's point of view, for the most part, she's in the middle of a very busy life with work, partner, kids, community involvements. And even when the relationship is serene, and there are those really serene and loving relationships. What the daughter, for the daughter, the mother is one more piece in a series of juggling all the parts of her life that need to be juggled. So what she wants to assure herself of is that her mother is safe, that she's not going to fall, that she's taking her medicine, that her driving is safe, whatever it is that her mother is okay. <clears throat> and what we hear from the mothers, which to me was the important part of this, is I don't really say anything beyond fine when she asks me because I don't really think she's interested. Let me I stop think- you there. Sandra, you're talking about you interviewed so many of these mothers and daughters, and the description you're giving sounds like really, well, you're talking about you started at age 65, so you have 65-year-old women who are saying that they, they their daughters, as they see them, are simply just people who need to be taken care of and that they're vulnerable and they're not active and they're not, I, I, I guess that seems like... A, depressing but uh and that the mothers themselves are afraid to engage with their daughters because they don't want to be overbearing i mean is is it would seem to me there would be lots of different types of relationships depending on the absolutely absolutely i didn't i didn't mean that that was the central thing that we found but one of the the Parentheses that was pretty common was that between autonomy and safety. That that was pretty much uh, determined a lot of the relating. The other very central thing that we found in the interviews is when we began, and we started in a very, very neutral way, saying, tell us about your relationship with your daughter. And the language that women used almost always was the language of closeness how close they felt, if they were as close as they wanted to be. A lot of that turned out to be comparative with other women in their lives and how they were with their daughters. If if they were sort of like their friends, that felt close enough. But the language of closeness was very much the determining uh, through line. But what we discovered as we went more deeply into the interview, which took many, many hours, um, was that closeness is expressed in such different ways for different mothers. So for some mothers, knowing that they're going to have Sunday dinner with their daughter every week is that they count on that and she'll be there, or that they're going to do family holidays together, or that she's going to text so that the mother knows where she is or that she's going to call her mother on the way home from work, which may be the only time she has. Um, 
There are so many different forms of closeness depending on the time the daughter has and what's possible in the relationship, but some mothers feel close with one set of things and other mothers don't. So for some mothers, if you have a verbal daughter sitting on the sofa together intermittently but having deep, deep, deep talks. And for others, it's sitting side by side on the sofa with a bowl of popcorn watching a video and not talking at all. So there's an enormous variability of what is for the mother, a sense of closeness. But then the other side of that, of course, is the temperament of the daughter and what the daughter's experience and need for closeness is and what what fits for her and of course being at a different life stage and her need for closeness with her mother is a different need because once mother is retired she has more time and the other thing that she has is more courage and this was one of the things that I didn't know was going to turn up in the interview uh, as consistently as it did but there's something about being in a primary relationship with time that allows so many things to just fall away. All of the things that matter, they would say, in my 40s and 50s, being chosen, being the best, having people invite me back, having people want me, feeling important, none of that is present anymore. What matters now is making sure that the important relationships in my life are the very best they can be. And having the courage and the absence of that self-protective defensive ego that's true for so many of us in our 40s and 50s, not having that be in the way to look at how the choices you made as a young mother left wounds in your daughter's life or how the way you parented over the years or whatever it is to own to name, to take responsibility, to apologize even if necessary for the ways in which you were not the mother that you intended to be. That's That's been true in a lot of the interviews, that there's a freedom and a courage to take responsibility for yourself. And that, of course, that inevitably opens the daughter to say whatever it is that she has to say back. But the point for us was the, what the process is for the mother and the courage that comes, as one mother said, I am in a primary relationship with time. And every decision that I make is predicated on how do I want to use this time wisely and well. Well, I guess one of the other things I would seem to me is how do you want to do it, but then also how are you going to communicate it? Because I'm thinking about all the different kinds of mother-daughter relationships that there can be, as you say, especially if you're talking about different cultures, you're talking about different age groups. You're also talking about how the relationship that you had with your daughter when she and both of you were younger uh, impacts on the relationship later. I mean, if you never spoke to each other or you were very distant or whatever, you're not going to suddenly become closer necessarily when you're older. Uh, it might exacerbate some of the differences. Uh, at least I've noticed that in some of my colleagues, for instance, and their uh, mother-daughter relationships. I mean, in my case, my, my mother, uh, when she was 65, uh, had her second husband and was traveling around the world. And uh, I didn't see her as <laughs> anything but very, you know, autonomous and uh, healthy. And, uh, you know, and of course, that changes over time as, as, as she's gotten older. But it's, as you say, it's very complex, I guess. And you say there are certain themes. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about, I, I'd really like to get into maybe some of the specifics of each one of the the different kinds of uh, relationships and, and, and how mother-daughter relationships and, and what made that what makes them unique or different. Well, say, for instance, the mother who never was able to talk honestly to her daughter, does she, I'm sure you've spoken to those women, uh, what happens? How do they, you know, break that silence? Or do they ever, or does it just get worse? Well, let me see if I can answer this in two parts. Let me answer your question first. Um, Sometimes what has to happen, and we did have four or five women who had been estranged and remained estranged from their daughters, um, and sometimes all that is possible is an acceptance of what is 
and even if it's undergirded with a yearning for something else. And we do that in our lives in lots of aspects. We have to accept that it's not going to change and the wound is too deep or whatever the reason is. But I think what I want to go back around and say to you is that our intention was not to try to explore the relationship between the mother and the daughter so much as trying to understand the experience of the mother mothering the daughter that she has. So we were not thinking very much about the reciprocal nature of the relationship except insofar as the far side of whatever rapprochement might be possible. Uh, so, for example... Um, the mothers that we interviewed were daughters of the 1940s and 1950s, where our mothers, for the most part, mothered. That's what they did, and it was pretty rule-bound and pretty concrete. We came of age in the 60s and the 70s where everything was changing, where one and two marriages ended in divorce, where what it meant to be a woman and an active member of the world, everything was up for grabs, our values, our thinking, everything was changing. And for so many of us, and certainly many of the women we interviewed, um, the way we mothered was deliberately to show our daughters other ways of being women in the world, women who were both domestic and working and active and involved in the community in whatever ways that we were, more spontaneous when kids were five and six years old and would have a meltdown, the mother would say, tell mommy how you're feeling. Well, that was not part of the vocabulary of the 40s and 50s, the, the language of feeling, the, the shared vocabulary of intimacy. There were so many things that were very, very different. A, a lot of spontaneity, a lot of adventure, a lot of divorce, a lot of blended families, a lot of disruption in all kinds of ways, all designed with great enthusiasm, as our mothers told us, um, to open up the world for our daughters so they would go forward in this great new world that we were busily making. Well, what happened to a great extent, not entirely, but to a great extent, is our daughters are parenting the way our mothers did. The level of helicopter parenting, the level of supervision, the level of time that is spent in the life of one five-year-old or ten-year-old is pretty much the same as how my mother mothered me. And what we came to understand was that our daughters, our kids, all of them, but our daughters in this case, really are conservative. Kids are really conservative. They want Tuesday to be like Wednesday to be like Thursday. They want to have something predictable. They don't want all those adventures. It's disruptive. It's scary. All of those divorces, all of those new people coming into the house, it was, it, there's an enormous backlash, I would say, against what it was we were trying to do. And what Nan and I were interested in is how are we making sense of that now? And how is that being enacted by us with our daughters? Um, for some mothers, there are words. Words are the, are the conduit by which they communicate, but that's not the case with lots and lots of mothers and daughters, and not everything gets said. And, you know, the other thing that happens in the dominant culture is that old women are so stereotyped as getting up in everybody's business and, and bossing people around and giving advice and having no boundaries and all that. In fact, what we found was almost exactly the opposite, that mothers talked about biting their tongue and tiptoeing around not to say anything because those third rails are still so alive that even when mothers and daughters have good, loving relationships, that third rail that mommy left daddy or uh, mommy moved to another state for a job she wanted and she had to leave her school, those kind of third rails are still alive. It's not that the relationship isn't a good relationship. It's that the mother 
spins. The mother brings an enormous level of awareness to skirting those things because the fear is the daughter will step away or withdraw or be angry or something will happen to disrupt the closeness, which is what she wants. She wants the very best closeness she can have. And those third rails are still very alive. And it also shows up in the ways that women talk about how they are with their grandchildren. One one mother said, it's like a triangle. My daughter isn't there when I'm with my grandson, but she's there. Because the ways that the daughters are raising the kids, whatever the values are, the priorities or the choices, may not be consonant with the mothers, and the mother, of course, has to yield to how her daughter is raising her child. That's appropriate. But the feeling of the mother, the grandmother, is that child is not getting the best of me because I am being so constrained and trying to fit into what my daughter is trying to do. So, you know, is I guess that, can I a ask, long uh, answer Sandra, to is say, that just, I yeah. just want to ask you, I want to interrupt you for a minute. Is that just something that is the nature of the beast because the relationship gets more complex because there's a grandchild, there may be another partner, or the daughter has a partner. Um, and so there are a lot more people invested in all of this, you know, family dynamics so is is there any is is it always a negative thing or is, did, did some of the mothers have sort of I don't know you would say a positive or answers to all of this because what you say I think is really true and quite common uh the 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 mother being afraid to to say too much or because she can be ostracized or feels like she could be ostracized in, in a moment right doesn't have the same control as you say mm-hmm. over her daughter um but is there a solution to that? Uh, No, I don't think I know enough to suggest solutions. I think that every dyad is so different. And as I said before, um, a companionable silence can heal um, a bump for one dyad and the need for a conversation is necessary for another. So, uh, you know, I don't I don't know, I don't, I don't want to sound like I know what mothers ought to do or what would be a good thing for them to do. I think that what I care about is that they take their experience of being the mother of that daughter seriously and honor it with who they are and who she is. And listening to the stories of all the women in the book, one of those stories will resonate. One of those stories will fit for who temperamentally the two of them are. I mean, Nan and I never had any intention of writing a self-help book. What we wanted to do was open a conversation that is long, long overdue uh, for mothers to talk about what it is to look at their daughter and feel disappointment, to feel um, loss, to feel uh, pride. I mean, whatever it is that they feel, or, or, or pride in some ways and disappointment in other ways, which is probably closer to the truth. I, I want that to be a part of the, vocab- the emotional vocabulary of old women, a way of knowing themselves and taking their life seriously in all of its complexity. That's the part I care about. Yeah, well, I think you've done a great job, and you have opened the door, I guess, and and described a situation that hasn't really been talked about for some of the reasons we discussed in the beginning of the interview. Uh, tell us where, because we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, give us a website that we can go to that we can follow you with the, in terms of what you're doing with the book. And I assume you're going to carry this. I call it a project uh, further. Uh, both of you, uh, you and. Uh, uh, you're a co-author of the book. Uh, so do we, well, can we have that? Yeah, I'm yeah. going to carry the book forward. Nan is already on to her next book, but I'm I'm going to be taking the book forward. My website is sandrabutler.net, and I'm on Facebook, and um, people can find me in both places, and I look forward to hearing from them and um, to this conversation beginning to blossom in the way that, so many of the conversations we began with my two earlier books really blossomed, and I'm hoping this will be another example of that. 
Yeah, well, I have so many will, I, colleagues and family and friends who are certainly are or will be interested in this book who are becoming just, you know, becoming the mothers that you've talked about in the book. I'm glad uh, to hear that. Yeah, great. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire, with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is hotel heiress and entrepreneur's widow, Mitzi Perdue, author of How to Make Your Family Business Last, Techniques, Advice, Checklists, and Resources for Keeping the Family business in the family. America's family businesses are in crisis, from huge multinational corporations to tiny local mom-and-pop shops. Such businesses form the backbone of the American economy. And yet a whopping 70% don't make it past the first generation. The daughter of a Sheraton Hotels co-founder and the wife of the late entrepreneur Frank Perdue, Mitzi Perdue, sits at the nexus of two of America's most iconic family businesses. As such, she is uniquely positioned to shed light on the crucial role family culture plays in business enterprise. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Mitzi. Oh, it's just so great to be on, and I can't believe Voice of America. I love Voice of America. This is fantastic. Well, Mitzi, I want to ask you first. Uh, you come from two 
I mean, you talk about corporate culture. That's really, really important in terms of families and family businesses staying together, whether they're small businesses or large businesses. You come from two very wealthy families, one by birth and one by marriage. And I guess my first question is, is there a difference in terms of fitting into the corporate culture, whether you're born into it or whether you marry into it? What an interesting question. Uh, Well, my premise is that absolutely every family business does have a culture. And by the word culture, I mean the way we do things. And I found it just remarkably easy to fit into the Purdue culture because it was really quite close to the one I grew up in. And the culture is things like that your word counts, be honest, be prompt, be reliable, um, be an egalitarian. And both families had very many of the same values. So it was, it was really almost as if when I married Frank, I felt as if I'd known him all my life. So, in other words, for you, it was seamless because there were similarity, although very different businesses, obviously, different kinds of businesses. But the overall values, are you saying, were similar? So that made it easy in terms of the character of the businesses? Yeah. Like, for example, um, I mean, this is a small and a trivial one, but it counts. Uh, My father was very, very big on being prompt. Frank was very, very big on prompt. Uh, If we were to be, let's say, at... I don't know, be picked up somewhere, he would be there to the second. So, you know, it is a trivial thing, but but I was used to it. It might drive somebody else crazy. I loved it. It was like being home. What about families, though? Because I really want to get into kind of the nitty gritty. I mean, you're talking about, obviously, it was a very, has been a very positive experience for you. But you look at so many of these families, particularly the ones that are in the limelight, the very wealthy families, uh, the Bacardi family, for instance, who has been broken up for all kinds of reasons. Um, What do you, what happens in those families where it doesn't work? I mean, obviously, your book is a formula for how to make it work. But but I what, but yeah. since I grew up with a lot of these families and saw the things that didn't work, um, I'll mention some of them. And these are things that if you don't teach children or family members or or the marriage in, just you know. So it's got to be such a strong cu- part of your culture that just as I believe I would never commit murder, <laughs> I think there are a lot of other things that I simply would never do. And one of them is to take a quarrel outside of the family. When I grew up in the Sheraton Hotels, we were taught a whole lot of lessons about how to control quarrels because there does not exist a family. I mean, there's no such thing as a family that doesn't have conflict, but it's how you handle it that's key. And in, you know, it's remarkable that in both the Hendersons and the Purdue's, the Hendersons being the family that started the Sheratons, in the, in the case of both of these families, we put tremendous effort on if you have a grievance of some sort, get it out in the open, and you can speak as strongly as you need to, even if it means yelling and screaming. But after it's been thoroughly heard and aired and everybody's talked it over and you come to a decision, then you have to close ranks and move forward and not look back. And and that means, among other things, in both families, just as I would never commit murder, I would never go outside the family with a quarrel. I wouldn't, like, go to the press. I wouldn't go to a lawyer because the complete requirement is you solve it within the family. And you might ask, how do you, how do you get to that point where, where you know that you don't, to use a Henderson expression, wash your dirty linen in public? Uh, we were told just from childhood that it would be just terribly selfish to take a quarrel outside of the family because when a family business fights, the consequences affect so many other people. For example, the employees, it's demoralizing. The stockholders, and in the case of Sheraton, when I was growing up, there were 25,000 stockholders, and we were told that we didn't have the right to put them at risk because of our petty quarrels. We, or, let's see, the stockholders, the the, the suppliers, the, the consumers, everybody is harmed when a family business quarrels. So I put a lot of effort in, in my book, How to Make Your Family Business Last. I put a huge amount of effort into telling my readers and sharing with them ways of avoiding family quarrels. 
why, why is it keeping them in in the family? Do you and, think it's and, more and, difficult, given and, and you given the example of when you grew up, of, and that was. A, a different generation. Now, let's say today, where the media, and not, not just the you know the traditional media, but you know the internet, all of those social media and stuff. It's isn't it difficult when when families that have high profile uh, to for members to stay out of the media? And, and I mean, I, I know that it's not quite the same as it was. Let's say when in in your in your generation, when you were your family of origin, when you grew up, and you were part of the uh, the Sheraton family? It's, yes, it's certainly different, but, but one of the things that, that I recommend to every family is that when you speak, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or Pinterest or wherever, it's more than just you. People assume that you're representing the family. And we, in both families, we go to a huge amount of effort to make sure that that we're really quite private about what we say on on the internet. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm aware of families that. Let, let's take politics for an example. I'm aware of families who who have gotten very political on the internet, and that seems to me a terrible mistake. Uh, I wouldn't do it because in my family, good lord, there's there's all sorts of political views, and if I gave my political views. It would it would sound as if I was representing the whole family, and I'm not. So I'm very careful to avoid politics, and I recommend or or other controversial things. And I certainly wouldn't uh, again to use that expression, wash our dirty linen in public, and publicly talk about about conflicts. Because again, I don't think you can name a family that doesn't have some conflict. It's just it's part of human nature. We're going to have conflicts, but. Keep them to yourselves if you're part of a family business. So the harm you can do isn't just to you and your siblings or your relatives. It, it can harm so many other people as well if a, family, if a family quarrel gets out of hand. And by the way, uh, just, just before coming on, I went to the Internet and I Googled business family feuds. And in 0.6 seconds, I got somewhere around 400,000 hits. So, you know, this is something that is a danger. And you know that statistic that you gave earlier about how 70% of family businesses aren't going to make it to the next generation? The largest part of that reason that they don't make it to the next generation is family quarrels. The other one, by the way, is substance abuse. I've read that as many as half of the businesses, uh, of the family businesses, are are up against things like, for example, alcoholism, marijuana, yeah, I, or heart stuff. I, I always think of when you mention that. I think it isn't. The, I think the Getty family is the the third or fourth generation. There are so many of them involved in in uh, drug abuse, for instance. Uh, at least well, that, that let this, me give, yeah. I think I can give our listeners something of real concrete value that's not widely known. There's research out of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, America's Georgia, not 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 the former Soviet Union, but uh, in in Atlanta, Georgia, there's this wonderful woman. Her name's Robin Fibish, and for decades she's been studying what it takes to be a high functioning family. And by high functioning, I mean you know the kids stay in school, they they don't engage in substance abuse, <clears throat> they enjoy being with each other. So what is what what is the magic key to it? Well, in her view. And actually, there's a lot of other academic research that that agrees with this. The more meals you have together, the better off you are. Uh, the more you know your family's stories, because okay, here's here's a really, really, really important point. We are the stories we tell ourselves, and if you come from a family that tells about, uh, you know, how how frugal great grandmother was, or how hard grandpa worked, or or how honest we are, or just, you know, if you tell stories that illustrate, illustrate the good things, the, the values that you want in your family, you absorb them. And Robin Fivis has discovered that the more you know your family's stories, the more high-functioning your family will be, and the more protective that is against substance abuse. 
I think that's true in all families, not only the wealthy families we've been talking about, but just families in general. But what happens, what happens, Mitzi, when you bring in outsiders, let's say the children get married and they marry other people who have not been part of the family narration and growing up in the family and they have a different agenda or divorces. I think you mentioned that in the book as well. You know, you bring in some, you know, you have a, a new wife, uh, the head of the, 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 the family or the business has a new wife and she doesn't fit in or doesn't agree. So those are things that create a conflict. How do you resolve some of those issues? Well, actually, in my book, I try to address the major issues that are the predictable issues that are going to affect families, and we call them married ins. So, married ins. Let me tell a little bit about how we handle that in in both my birth family and my family by marriage. We put extreme effort into making them feel loved and enveloped and part of the culture, and it starts with say that. Say that one of my grandsons, or it's a step-grandson in this case, supposing he's just gotten engaged, and he's gotten engaged to a wonderful pediatrician, and this actually happens to be a fact, uh, I will interview her for the family newsletter. The family, family newsletter for adults comes out once a month, and I'll find out kind of what's important to her, what she loves, what her career aspirations are. And then, um, and then she'll get to read it before I send it to the rest of the family. But that means when, when she's welcomed into the family and meets them for the first time, everybody knows a lot about her. That they, you know, they know what to talk with her about. They know what she cares about. And by then, she's probably received our package of, of information about what we're about. And so, she is, she's introduced to the culture. We, we don't just leave it to accident. Uh, in the Henderson family, we, we do what I just described, but we do something else that I treasure. But it only, this only works if you're a really large family. But outside of the United States, I know of huge families like in India or China. Uh, when, when somebody gets married and say, say, say the wedding took place, we live in, say most of the family is in New Hampshire. But somebody got married in Beijing or in Tokyo. When they come to the family reunion in New Hampshire, we'll have a recreation of the whole wedding. And by that I mean the bride gets to wear her dress again. She gets to process down an aisle. Uh, she gets to, she and her husband get to repeat their vows again. Um, we even recreate some of the toasts so that the people who weren't there for the wedding get to relive the wedding. And I've talked with the brides who tell me that they're just as nervous and excited the second time that they get to wear their dress and, and walk down an aisle. So, yeah, we, we, we really turn ourselves inside out to be welcoming and embracing. And I think that works. I think human relationships are a little bit like a mirror. If you're loving and outreaching to them, it tends to come back to you. Yeah. So in other words, you're not guarded as a family, not overly guarded. You engage the, the, the new member of the family in, in very, oh, it sounds like very creative ways. Um, well, we also have welcome packages. For example, uh, the Hendersons have a What It Means to Be Us book. And the, the producer, I expect them to be working on it um, next year. But the What It Means to Be Us book is, it's, a book of essays, probably, it's probably 80 pages long, and everybody in the family writes an essay on what it means to be us. And there's a huge advantage to that for the family members because it means you're thinking about what it means to be us. But it also means that when the new family member, say by marriage, joins the family, she, she's seen pictures and, and knows the interests and what everybody else cares about. So it, it's a way of joining cultures. What about, I, that, I want to stop you there for a second, because what about, because we're talking about um, engaging a new member of the family and what it means to be us, and you're talking about corporate culture. In your experience, what if the corporate culture, let's say in a particular very successful business, um, is a patriarchal one, which is common for a lot of the, you know, the businesses that have gone on for generations. And then you bring in women, younger women, who don't necessarily 
uh, embrace that kind of a culture? And and is that an issue? Have you seen that happen? And what do you do in those kinds of circumstances? Um, yeah. Okay, to answer your first question first, yes, I see it right and left. I mean, good Lord, the year 2017 or the era that we live in, it's totally a time of change. But that brings me to uh, one of the values that works in, in both, both my families and pretty much in the successful families that I've seen. Kids are taught from just the youngest age that you can't always be right that sometimes the relationship's more important than your being right. The, um, and then something that, that might be, I don't know, almost strident or shocking, but I don't believe in standing on principle in, in a family situation because in, in the Hendersons we say that standing on principle in a family argument is the same thing as saying, I'm going to be stubborn, I'm not going to listen to your point of view. And our values are that you have to listen to the other point of view. Um, so, I, well, let, let me invite you to ask the next question then. <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to kind of take it a little bit step further because also in fa- families and especially wealthy families, there are lots of issues that resolve around power and who has the power in the family. So kind of adding to that, if it's, let's say, a patriarchal family where most, if to have any kind of power in the family in terms of running the business, it goes to the males. And the women are not going to be allowed to do that. And I see that a lot in in certain kinds of, in certain families. Um, And that turns out to be a huge issue that can really split families apart. Uh, well, I, I just have to stipulate that, yes, that's a very difficult situation, and it's going to be resolved one way or the other with each family and within each culture. Um, if, if somebody, well, I don't think it's an intractable problem, but if, if it, that kind of thing were to come up with, with either of my two families, I think that one of the things we'd do would be a lot of talking about it, get it out in the open, and again, if you have to raise your voice or pound the table to get your point across, my view is everybody needs to be listened to, and but then on top of that, you can't always get your way, and I, I don't have a good answer. Um, part of me says patience and gentleness, but... Uh, in some families, that's probably not a good idea. Well, it's that brings me to the next case. case. Yeah, well, you talk about it, I think you mentioned in the book, you, you get to the point, well, the pros and cons of staying in a family business. Maybe um, at some point one wouldn't do that or decide not to stay in no, the business. No, I'll for, tell you what yeah. happened with my birth family, because although you mentioned that my father co-founded the Sheraton Hotels, when he died, we did sell it. But we stayed together as a family because when you sell a business, uh, you can put it in, into other investments, which is what we did. But that, that was absolutely a test of, of, how, of how well we learned to keep the family quarrels within the family. Because when, when my father died and there was a question of, do we sell Sheraton Hotels or not? Uh, excuse me a sec. Um, for us, the question of whether to sell or not, there were some really strong economic reasons to do it, but at least half the family, and I was part of that half, didn't want to sell. We felt, you know, my fa- this would be just throwing away my father's legacy. Nobody would ever uh, care about the employees the way we do. Um, but it was, it was our identity. So the feelings were as hot and strong and boiling over as they possibly could be. But... We did, you know, there were raised voices. There was a lot of disagreement in this. But when we did come to a decision, I feel everybody's position had been heard. And that goes a long way to to resolving things when everybody knows that they're heard. And we did come to a decision. Nobody ever went to a lawyer to defend their views. Nobody ever went to the press to say, to make a public argument out of it we we clo- we made the decision and we closed ranks and the benefit for doing this is that 50 years later we're still a strong united family we at the family reunions people enjoy each other uh, there's a lot to be said for learning how to deal with conflict ahead of time 
Well, you know, that's obviously what your work is about. Not only with the book, I know you go, you'd have a lecture series, you do go across the country talking about this very subject, uh, which I, which is, I think, very important. I mean, we've been talking, I guess, primarily about high worth, high net families, but what about just your average business, you know, small businesses? Uh, we're, we're, I, I think you're saying that this applies to both, right? I mean, all of these I, things. I, yeah. I think all of these principles apply to absolutely everybody. And I had a, for what was for me just a spectacularly moving event happen, and it was just a few days ago. I was on a train going from New York to Boston, and I was sitting beside an African-American woman. She was in her 40s, and we got to chatting, and she told me that she was starting a business of her own. Um, and because I'd written a book on, on how to make your family last, uh, and I had it with me, she asked if she could look at it. Well, somewhere around 20 minutes into this, of her reading the book, I noticed that she had tears running down her cheeks. And I look over at her and I ask, you know, what's wrong? Did I, did I say something that upset you? And she said, no. She said, this information, even though I'm just starting my business, is so important to me that I feel as if, as if I was blessed to get this information now. And, you know, I don't want to make somebody cry, but if they're trying, she told me they were tears of gratitude and joy that she had information that was just so on target for what she needed. And so I conclude that the advice can be useful to anybody. And also it can be, as you were describing the situation with this, with this young woman, is, uh, it's preventative in terms of not getting oneself into a situation where the business winds up in a disaster and uh, there's no business left by this third generation. So, um, or even, even the second generation. I'm thinking of, of a man that I met at a family business conference. And I'm not sure how old he was, but I'm going to put him in his 70s. And we got to talking, and the man was contemplating, dare I say this, he was contemplating jumping off a bridge. He was just distraught and in despair. And so, you know, I'm asking him what's going on. And he tells me that he had two sons, you know, they were the light of his life, but then they they became alcoholics, and he tried tough love on them, you know, where you, you just cut off everything and and hope that they'll turn around. Well, they didn't, and they ended up hating him, and his wife divorced him over being so tough on the two sons. And he said, now, you know, at this age, I, I look at everything that I've worked for my entire life, and I have nobody to hand it on to. There's, it's as if my whole legacy of my whole life has evaporated. And, you know, when I'm hearing his story, I'm thinking, but there's so many things, if only he had known them, that could have prevented the pain that he's suffering right now. Well, there's one thing he could have done, or if he had had the opportunity, and we have to say goodbye because we have a minute left, but read your book. Read your book. It's Mitzi Perdue's book, How to Make Your Family Business Last, Techniques, Advice, Checklists, and Resources for Keeping the Family Business in the Family. You could buy it online and bookstores everywhere. And it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. A great book. Everyone should read it. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.